You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hey, everyone. We're back with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Abby Eblen from National Fertility Center. And today I am joined by my charming and captivating co-host, Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Hello. And Dr. Carrie Bedient from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas. Hi. And we also have a really special guest, Dr. Bruce Lessie. He is from Atrium Health at Wake Forest Baptist in Winston-Salem, and he's going to talk a little bit about the receptiva assay in just a minute. So how have you guys been doing? Everybody been doing well? They're good. It got cold here in Texas. It's weird. We were like it almost got- at like 90-something degrees last week, and now it's like 50-something. And it got very cold here, too. How about how about in uh, Wake Forest, Bruce? How's the weather there? Well, I live up in the mountains in Virginia, so it's a little chillier up there than uh, down down the lowlands. But yeah, it's been beautiful all week, and then it got chilly last this last couple of days. So I hear you have a special hobby, and I'm wondering if the weather affects your special hobby that you do. Well, I'm a beekeeper. Uh, I have two hives now, and uh, <laughs> they, they of course love this time of year with everything blooming. And oh, yeah. Uh, the challenge is not to get greedy and take too much honey because they do need to have it for the winter. And uh, my, it, it is between the mites and the other problems that bees get these days. It's a fun but challenging hobby. How long have you been doing this? About 15 years. How did you get into beekeeping and how many times aggregate do you think you've been stung? <laughs> Actually, you get stung less and less the more you relax and don't worry about it. Uh, also, it's important to get gentle bees or get rid of bees that are too aggressive. Um, I got into it. Take your bee friends uh, wisely. <laughs> a friend of my daughter's uh, was a beekeeper, and I made the comment that that looked like an interesting hobby. And before I know it, he brought me a beehive. And so that was when I lived in Hillsborough. So you've been doing it for a long time because when I met you for the first time, and I hate to say it's been like 20 years ago, I know you were a beekeeper back then too. So you've done this for a long time. I guess it has been a long. <laughs> so now how much honey do you get from your bees usually? Last year I got about 100 pounds out of two hives. Oh, wow. Oh, so do you honey. sell it or give it away or what do you do with your honey? The staff love it. We bring it in and give it away. So do you have the the a mass accumulation of honey-based recipes for, <laughs> for syrups, for cookies, for breads, for all those things, butters? Well, it's it's nice to be able to give it away at Christmas and uh, you know, throughout the year. Oh, a lot yeah. of allergies really like to get local honey. That's really cool. So, so, your so we recently like- had a guest who, um, whose I believe husband was a maple syrup. Yes. Oh yeah. Farmer. Farmer. Yes. Yeah. So, so are there any unusual things that you put honey on that other people may not think about putting honey on? Like snow cones. I think that was what we found in the maple farming business. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Very traditional. So have your beehives, like, have they stayed pretty stable over the years? Because I know there's been an issue with bees, like you said, with different types of diseases and things like that. And I know the bees are kind of dwindling. Yeah, I've had some trouble keeping them alive. But um, I've I've been learning more about mite management and uh, it's <laughs> getting better at it. You actually have to go in the hives. You can't ignore them because if oh. you ignore them, you know, 
a mouse will get in there or something oh, like yeah. that. So, huh. It sounds like a whole nother job. It sounds like a whole extra, extra uh, thing to do. <laughs> well, I, very good. Love, I love watching them. Oh, I think it'd be really fascinating. I really do. Um, so Susan, do you have a question for us? I do. Week? I do. So this is our question for today. Uh, so thankful for this podcast. Wish one of you could be my REI. Husband and I are 31, trying to conceive for two years. At 29, found out she had a bicornuate uterus, one kidney, incompetent cervix, and PCOS. REI fixed my uterus. <laughs> Husband's semen analysis was great. Tried IUI in um, middle of 2022. Didn't take. OB asked her to give her another six months. Put her on metformin. Also went to weight management doctor and lost 30 pounds. OB wants to start letrozole, even though previously only time I had follicles was with Clomid and letrozole. She was hoping weight loss would make it different. I worry about time and if we should go straight to IVF. How many medical medicated cycles would you do? Also, should I be worried about one kidney and getting pregnant or the incompetent cervix? Ooh, go for it, Carrie. <laughs> so well, let's take that part by part. Um, with respect to incompetent cervix or cervical insufficiency, um, it, it's not like it's not like your cervix applied for a job and then like bailed out halfway through. Um, with that, I'm really curious to know how that was discovered. Did she say that she's got other children? No. I don't think she did. Yeah. So maybe they just maybe because it's thin or, or well, maybe, maybe they're short. worried she's got a bicornuate uterus, so they're worried that she's going to have an incompetent yeah. cervix. Like I'd be really curious to know how concrete that diagnosis is. So that's one thing. And then start starting to get into the uterus, having a bicornuate uterus that's fixed, you don't hear about that very often. I know. I almost want to think maybe it was a septate uterus that got fixed. Yeah. For her sake, I really hope it's a septate because that's yeah, a lot probably easier was. to fix and it's a lot easier to not have problems later with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then getting to to kind of the heart of the issue, which is the the weight loss and the PCOS. Certainly, losing weight can impact your sensitivity to medication. So it's possible that just letrozole at this point will do the trick. Um, how long you decide to go with medicated cycles really depends on what your overall family goals are. If you just want one child, then yeah, you've got a lot longer leash in order to try this. Um, if you know that you want three or four kids, then you might want to jump to IVF a little bit sooner just because we're not really worried about the first one or two kids. It's it's the later ones that um, that we always kind of keep in mind of all right, what's going to happen. And, and particularly if you really and truly do have cervical insufficiency and you are a little bit more prone to having a premature kiddo, um, that's that may extend the time you take between children to to get back on your feet and get stabilized again in your life, um, I, I would see a high-risk OB doc about the cervical insufficiency just to figure out where that's coming from, what they, if anything, they want to do about it. Cerclages kind of go in and out of favor. That's a stitch around the cervix that theoretically holds everything in. I remember those were some of the subjects of the biggest debates when I was in residency of, <laughs> does it work? Or too cerclage or not too cerclage? <laughs> yes. Yes. I mean, if you wanted to watch the whole MFM, the high-risk OB department, go up in in a huge fight, like all you have to do is drop deucer clause for twins, and then you watch the whole place devolve. It's great. Um, that's one way to get out of answering questions as a resident in the middle of board review. <laughs> well, and you know, ultimately too, it almost sounds like they've sort of just warned her that you know, incompetent cervix can be an issue with their bicornuate uterus. And so, you know, now we have the technology to kind of measure the cervix and follow it along. And, you know, certainly she's going to be somebody that they're going to be worried about. But, you know, they may decide just to follow her and see what happens. The other thing to think about, I agree with what you said, you know, she's young, no reason she couldn't do some cycles of IUI and she may respond to it better now that she's lost some weight. Um, but
But the other thing that I worry a little bit about her with her bicornuate uterus is multiple gestation. And the one advantage I think that IVF would have would be you could, you know, you put a single embryo in there and it Mm -hmm. decreases your chance, doesn't make it zero, but decreases your chances of multiple gestation. So that might be an argument to maybe go to that maybe sooner rather than later. Mm -hmm. And in in reference to your single kidney, I mean, obviously your renal function is very, very, very important because you don't have a backup. And so I'm assuming assuming your OB has checked to see your creatinine is normal and that you have normal renal function. And most people with a single kidney do very well during pregnancy. Um, It probably predisposes you to some medical things um, that could happen during pregnancy. But I I think that, you know, I'd be more concerned about this potential incompetent cervix and bicornuate uterus than necessarily the fact that you only have a single kidney. I mean, one thing that I would think about with a single kidney and, and especially hearing that she's lost weight is optimizing your blood pressure from the Mm get-go, optimizing your exercise, your nutrition, all of that. Because if you are at higher risk of preeclampsia or elevated blood pressure for whatever reason in pregnancy, that puts an extra strain on the kidneys and pregnancy puts an extra strain on the kidneys. So I would try and optimize all of that as best you can before you get pregnant so that you're starting off from a really nice spot. Agreed. Very good. Well, now we're going to talk a little bit about the receptiva assay. And I know that's um, something that a lot of our listeners are really interested in. And we're so fortunate today to have Bruce Lessie with us, who has done research on implantation for many, 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 many years. And before it was ever called the receptiva assay, he started out and it came out probably, I guess it was called an integrin biopsy back then. Yeah, it, it, there was another test uh, based on the beta-3 integral. And you, you did that way back when you did that by itself. And then there was a time, I think, when you did the receptiva, um, I mean, the BCL-6 and an integrin at the same time, alpha-V, beta-3, right? They're still uh, available together and they can be ordered. Um, the beta-3 integrin is fairly specialized. It, when it's missing, it's very reliably uh, it's a very reliable indicator of endometriosis, but only if the endometrium is in phase. And if you're out of phase or you do the biopsy too early, integrins are always missing. So that it became somewhat problematic. <clears throat> so let me back up just a little. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, go ahead. I was going to say, let me back up just a little bit. For our listeners that don't know what a receptive assay is, can you just tell us a little bit about what it is, and why would somebody want to do that? Well, I would make the comment that uh, endometriosis and its role in implantation failure and uh, recurrent pregnancy loss and miscarriage has really been uh, ignored until recently. I think we're starting to see papers now. There's a paper in press and Furt and Sturt on this. Um, and I think a lot of this goes back to Kurt Barnhart's paper in, in endometriosis and IVF, showing that it did not cause IVF failure. Mm-hmm. The problem is those aren't the patients we're seeing. The patients he was looking at had already been diagnosed and already been uh, evaluated. And maybe those patients don't have a problem. But the patients we see in IVF are the ones that haven't been diagnosed. And they come to IVF, they have unexplained infertility or unexplained loss, and then they do IVF and they fail. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a real tragedy. And as you know, Abby, the, uh, the time to diagnosis for endometriosis is about 11 years. Oh, wow. I honestly didn't realize it was that long. Wow. 
So we really needed a test that would help direct patients toward a diagnosis when their when laparoscopy is being done less and less by busy IVF doctors like us. Yeah. <laughs> so I was gonna I was gonna make a comment that 10, 15, 20 years ago, if you came in for an infertility diagnosis, you had a pretty darn good chance of having a laparoscopy. Laparoscopy, yeah. And you found and endometriosis. Potentially diagnosed yeah. with endometriosis, whereas we have become less and less invasive in our diagnosis phase of infertility. And that that probably has contributed um, greatly in a in a shift of potentially less endometriosis diagnosed and more unexplained. It's not like it really changed. It's just that we don't have that information because we're not looking directly inside the belly anymore. Right. And there are uh, fa- fairly well-known uh, REIs that I won't mention that totally don't believe in implantation failure. <laughs> And if you fail with a euploid embryo, they'll just put another embryo back and they'll mm-hmm. keep doing it with saying that the cumulative pregnancy rate is uh, over 80%. But I mean, how many embryos do you want to go through? Yeah. Some women with, with poor ovarian reserve don't have embryos to spare. So we really need a test to help direct us what to do. And now with this move toward suppression, which I'm sure you all are doing for some of your unexplained implantation failure patients. Mm -hmm. This helps give the patient a a reason to move forward and um, consider Lucron suppression for two months Mm -hmm. because that, in our hands at least, is extremely helpful. So a lot of our patients who have endometriosis and who write in, um, they're going to hear increased numbers of failures and they're immediately going to want to know what type of failures are that? Are they failures in obtaining embryos? Are they failures in implantation? And so can you answer that a little bit more? And then we'll dive into exactly what the receptiva is and how you get there. So especially nowadays with PGT, when you put a euploid embryo back and you don't get a pregnancy, something's wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, And or if you have a biochemical pregnancy, or if you have multiple IVF failures, either not Mm -hmm. getting pregnant, or uh, if you're younger and you don't get pregnant, you start to wonder what in the heck's going on. And so so, this is all talking about embryos that you can get to easily that are PGT tested. It's when you transfer them, they don't stick. So those kind of problems, right? It's always been a problem. And in in yesteryear, when our IVF success rates for 35%, 35%, we didn't think yeah. much about it because, you know, there were a lot of reasons why embryos might not stop. <laughs> but nowadays, with, with uh, in a good program, uh, we find that if we put a euploid embryo back and it fails, we move immediately to testing. And uh, most of those patients do test positive for the receptiva test, which we can talk about further. So would you recommend then, say, saying somebody's reproductive endocrinologist transfers an embryo, they transfer one beautiful euploid embryo, easy transfer, no explanation, and the pregnancy doesn't occur, or they have a biochemical, is that the point when you would say that patient needs to have a receptiva assay biopsy? Yeah, there are other, <clears throat> excuse me, there are other questions you can ask that might give you a clue that the patient has endometriosis. Um, we're working on a, a paper now we're presenting in Edinburgh next week, uh, showing that if you just simply ask if you have bowel changes with your period, that has an 86% chance of having endometriosis. Wow. Oh my which goodness. Is better, which is better than, uh, the finding of pelvic pain or dysmenorrhea. Interesting. So when you say bowel changes, do you mean the uh, the loosening of the bowels or constipation or what what kind of 
of changes because we hear about those so much when people come in to talk to us. Right. And if you pay attention, it's often associated with pain as a teenager, and uh, they probably do have endometriosis. Um, we laparoscoped 70 women, and like I said, 86% had pathology. Um, wow, endometriosis. pretty incredible. Pretty incredible. So you can ask questions about um, you know, other things that might help you. But this test in particular could help direct a patient toward a diagnosis without doing surgery. And so say you say, okay, this person has a real high likelihood of having endometriosis. I'm worried that that's affecting their implantation. How does this biopsy work? What's the, what are the next steps? What would you tell your patients? Well, we, um, in collaboration with Steve Young, who was at UNC and now is at Duke, um, we published the original paper showing that if you do a biopsy around the window of implantation, which is cycle day 19 to 24, um, and send it off for the BCL6 lymphoma marker, which is an inflammatory marker, uh, we showed that those patients had a much higher chance of having endometriosis on laparoscopy. Now, there were some false positives and obviously false negatives, but um, we then went uh, at Greenville with Creighton Likes and we did an IVF paper and showed that if you did surgery or if you put them on Lupron, those patients, in fact, did much better in the subsequent IVF after failing. And IVF cycle. And you usually recommend two months of Lupron and two months of Letrozole, correct? I don't use Letrozole. That was published, but we find that, uh, at least in our studies, Letrozole is not necessary. But two months of Lupron is usually the treatment. That's what we do. What are your thoughts about using Orlissa instead of Lupron in this type of situation? We're doing a randomized controlled trial from the NIH uh, study that we got funded through uh, Cicero. That, the uh, people who offer Receptiva. Um, and we are finding that Elagolex works fine. Those patients are almost all getting pregnant too. You have people on... 200 milligrams twice a day. Mm -hmm. 200 twice a day. When you have people on Lupron, for example, for those two months going before treatment, has anyone looked at two months versus three months or two months versus one month? Like was two months kind of a, this seems like a reasonable amount of time, so we're going to try it? Or or were there time studies that have been done that showed one month is not as good, three months doesn't give a benefit, and so two months is a sweet spot? I used to do three months, but uh, the paper by Steiner, which came out, uh, not Ann Steiner, but a uh, different one, in Fertility and Sterility in July of 2019, showed that uh, Letrozole plus Lupron for two months gave them the, a high pregnancy rate. Mm -hmm. We had been using Lupron, and so we never transitioned to Letrozole. Um, but we now have data over 40 patients. If they don't want to do Lupron with a euploid embryo failure, they get a 37% subsequent pregnancy. And if they do do Lupron for two months, there's a 90% ongoing pregnancy. Wow. Huge difference. When yeah. you were talking about the appropriate window, are you doing this on natural cycles or on program cycles with estrogen, progesterone instead of the day of embryo transfer doing the biopsy? That day, what what kind of methodology do you usually do? We, um, I don't want to give away too much, but we did a study with Stanford and it looks like medicated cycles uh, trying to combine an IVF cycle and doing a biopsy does not work very well. You mean during stimulation? Right. Uh, so we, we do it in natural cycles, uh, usually the month before they're planning to do the next uh, transfer. Then you get the scratch effect, which might be beneficial. <laughs> 
Uh, Abby remembers those days. Yes, I do. <laughs> so, so for those, not not all of us agree on um, certain things, which is completely good and fine. <laughs> some of us do ERAs and some of us don't. Can you do the receptiva biopsy at the same time as an ERA or does it really need to be a natural cycle? I just heard uh, about someone with a large data set where that was done. And those patients typically are desynchronous and out of phase. Hmm. And so it does not look like it's predictive for IVF outcome if you do it uh, on the day four or five that would be required for ERA. Um, Again, we haven't published this, but I've seen the data or heard about the data and it looks pretty like a large data set. So the biopsy was originally um, performed between LH plus six and LH plus 10. And uh, I think that's that's what we recommend. Okay. Yeah, and I'll tell you, Susan, just from a practical standpoint, patients really like it that it, you don't have to do it as part of a program cycle just because they can get it done with their next cycle. They don't have to wait two months and then repeat those two months over to make the changes. So they really, that's a big selling point. The one question I really have for you, Bruce, is BCL6, if it's an inflammatory marker, so then you treat them with Lupron or Lupron and Letrozole, you get rid of the inflammation. Why don't you get rid of the marker? Because that's always, patients all, are always asking, well, do we need to do another biopsy again to see if the marker's gone? And we say, well, no, because the marker will still be there. Well, no, I mean, I have, I, I have seen data from my own clinic where patients, where the marker goes down, they oh. get pregnant, but the women where it doesn't go down, don't. I don't have enough to publish, but the data was very clean. Um, and so it's possible to do that. But from a pragmatic standpoint, um, taking a woman uh, off of loop month and then putting her back into a menstrual cycle uh, defeats the purpose of getting... So they need to go right into a cycle after that then, yeah. after the and treatment is what you're saying. Inflammatory menstrual debris that's probably causing this phenomenon uh-huh. in the first place. So I advise people not to do that because okay. you may lose the benefit that you've just gained from a very expensive two months of week. Hmm. Yeah. What would you do in the situation of you've suppressed a woman for two months you go and do an embryo transfer. Unfortunately, that one doesn't work. Do you need to resuppress for another two months before doing another embryo transfer? Luckily, that's a rare phenomenon. <laughs> and the, it does come up. Um, there is there is a concern that there may be something called adenomyosis, which you all know. Uh, the, the listeners may not know what adenomyosis is, but it's a, it's a very severe form of endometriosis that involves endometrium in the wall of the muscle of the uterus. And in that setting, I don't think any amount of Lupron will help. Mm. Uh, I've been very impressed at how poorly these patients do. And so if you want to do another two months, you could, but be prepared to start talking about surrogate pregnancies and those kinds of patients. And how do you deal with biopsy in anovulatory women? Well, you can do program cycles, but you still have to do the biopsy after six or seven days of progesterone. So does okay, it help so to you're... do letrozole on those women? Like if they're anovulatory, give them a little bit of letrozole to get them to ovulate, and then you can time out when your biopsy occurs? That's an embarrassing question for me because we- You showed, like letrozole. <laughs> we, we showed that letrozole interfered with the beta-3 integrin test, but we never, we never determined whether it interfered uh-huh. with the BCL-6 test. Okay. Interesting. So okay. Because be, because letrozole is an aromatase inhibitor, and the defect of with endometriosis is probably too much estrogen. 
It makes yeah. sense that letrozole could be somewhat therapeutic. So how about Clomid? If you need Clomid, to get it to letrozole, Clomid, but if you can get it Clomid, ovulate. Clomid worked great for the beta-3 integrin test. And I assume it would be a safer alternative uh, for an ovulatory one. Maybe, maybe, maybe. I, I want to go back to the question though, because so, so, I'm trying to figure out how to like minimize the number of cycles I have to do on somebody if I still want to do an ERA. So I theoretically could do an endometrial biopsy for my ERA and repeat a biopsy two or three days later to be in the right phase to get the BCL6 answer. But you won't have the results from BCL6 back by then. Well, you can't do two biopsies in the same month. The first biopsy will influence the second one. Darn it. <laughs> oh, that's annoying. Okay, so my follow-up question, my follow-up question was letrozole. So you really don't use letrozole much anymore? I use letrozole all the time. Oh, okay, you do. So you do, you do like, that's what I thought. You like letrozole, but you don't use it with But I'm afraid that it might interfere with the results of the, of the uh, assay. Okay. So, and then one final question, Carrie, and then I'll let you talk. So one <laughs> final question is, um, so with BCL6, when you guys report the results, it's positive or negative, right? It's not like an amount. Well, we had a cutoff that we determined was 1.4. Uh, there are there are some other data out there that suggest that the cutoff should be higher. And occasionally patients do come in with a, a two. And uh, I, I say, you know, maybe you should take that with a grain of salt. If it's a very high 4.0, which is the highest H4, maybe that's more impressive. But we did, we did have a cutoff and we validated it. But that cutoff may, uh, may in fact be a little bit too low. I'm not sure. So there's no way that I could repeat it. Like say somebody wanted to repeat it again. There's no way we could do that and know really there's a difference because you don't report it that way. It is reported as positive or negative and it okay. gives you an H score. And importantly, the biopsy will rule out endometritis, which is another common cause of infection failure, which um, people don't talk about, but it's it's easily fixed. And many of my IVF patients where we did that went on and got pregnant without ever coming back for their embryos because they were cured. Yeah. So I have a patient who I'm going to tell her specifically about this episode because I know she's going to want to know all these things. So you know who you are. This is for you, my dear. Um, we have done multiple transfers and she decided not to do PGT testing on her embryos. She's young, otherwise has a, a good prognosis. She has one baby after a second embryo transfer a few years ago, and now we're on like embryo number four. And so I did the rest receptiva and she came up positive for the BCL six. So we're doing two months of Lupron and she has, uh, about 25 questions a day on, well, does it need to be exactly 60 days? Can it be 56? Can it be, you know, 75? So that's the first question. Of treatment, you mean? Lupron treatment? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, of, of yes. she's been on Lupron and we're hitting two months, but she's traveling to see me because she lives several states over. And so we're having to like plan the flights and get all that. And so she's very concerned about that timing. So I think you answered that before where you're looking for a minimum of about 60 days. Longer doesn't cause any harm. True? Yeah, I... I would use Agestin to fill in any gaps. For example, if you got to the end of the two months of oh. and you still needed to see her in a week or two, I would just put her on Agestin. It's a very good suppression that's very cheap, has no side effects, doesn't allow the patient to start cycling, and keeps the endometriosis suppressed. So that's like a, five milligrams daily? Yeah, five milligrams daily until you see her or until you start her uh, stimulation. That's a really that's cheaper than fit. another shot of Lupron, that's for sure. Amen to that. Or Orlissa. So, so the 
Other half of the question that she's asking is, should she go immediately from her last dose of Lupron to baseline the very next day? Or does she need a bleed somewhere in there? Because I know we want to avoid her menstrual, like we want to avoid her cycling, but we want to make sure we're starting on a clean foundation for her for her transfer lining. Well, you know the endometrium's thin when they're on Lupron. Right. It will remain thin on agestin, and it will start to grow as soon as you give her estrogen. So you're fine. She can mm. just be in a holding pattern um, yes. and be assured that you're not going to do anything to the benefit you've, you've gained uh, if you keep her on agestin. Okay. All right, lovely girl. There are the answers to your questions from the original source. I cannot get any better for you than this. <laughs> He and is the original. He's definitely the original source. The OG <laughs> Receptiva, yeah. That's right. Um, so looking at the other half of Receptiva, which is the BCL6 gets a ton of, you know, publicity and press and attention. Like you were talking about, the CD138s with, endometri uh, with endometritis gets less uh, attention. And what's what antibiotic protocol have you seen as the most effective after the CD138 of the component of the test comes up positive? Well, you can do uh, doxycycline for two weeks as a, as a starter. Um, you could also use uh, uh, Bactrim if you want, or Septra. Uh, I, I find that um, these patients usually do fine, and they need to be re-biopsied, by the way, mm, to yeah. confirm test of cure. What do you use, Abby? Doxycycline, that's what we typically use. We do, too. Yeah, it's cheap and it's easy, even if it does that's cost a lot. Flagyl works well if doxy fails, and it's inexpensive. How quick is the turnaround from the time of biopsy to when you typically get results? I think it's about three to five days. Oh, wow. That's it's pretty quick and it's not that expensive. Depends on FedEx, I guess. Yeah. I'm going to say, I, I typically typically get mine between five and 10 days. Um, and I don't know if I'm, if I'm, because I'm way further west than you guys, I don't know if it's a FedEx issue. <laughs> um, but that's like, I know when I've been talking with the the reps and the the people who functionally work with us on getting it they always say five to ten days granted they always it's better to under promise and over deliver so that may be a portion of it but usually have it by the time you start prep for the next cycle all right so bruce i have another question so obviously you do receptive essay no doubt are there any other biopsies or any other any other things out there that's, that are on the forefront as far as potentials for improvement in implantation? Because I'm amazed over my 20 plus year career about how little we still know about implantation. We know a whole lot more about embryos than we used to, but we know so very little about implantation. So is there anything else out there that you're tinkering around with, looking at that may be important for us? We did um, publish a paper. The first author is you, Y-O-O, with Jaywook Jian in Missouri. And it was a study on CERT1, and CERT1 and BCL6 appear to be co-expressed. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing about CERT1 is you could potentially use it in the proliferative phase and not have to worry about timing at all. Oh. So we're developing that as a possible another test that might be valuable in the future. Uh, and we're looking at blood sources, saliva, and things like that to see if there's more humane ways to uh, to get the results than having to do a biopsy of the endometrium. So have things like pentapods and all that other stuff that they used to talk about, is that is that a thing anymore or for implantation or not? Pentapods are real. The timing is is very sloppy and difficult to determine. So it's the truth is in the eye of the beholder. If you believe in something, you'll you'll believe it. 
And if you don't, you won't. Uh, so it uh, things have come and gone, but I think the window of implantation is four days long. It makes no sense to me that we have to do a test to determine whether to move the window of implantation by 12 hours or not. You know, that, <laughs> it just makes no biological sense. And I don't think the more recent global data coming out supports that. We still get pregnancies even if we put an embryo back a day late. So yeah, Susan, I did not put him up to that. Carrie's <laughs> not a big fan of ERA biopsies at all. Yeah. And most of us. I, I it's okay. We can agree to disagree. Yeah. 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 Like, I don't fault anybody for doing it. I didn't say anything about ERA. No, you didn't. That's true. <laughs> That's true. Sweet. <laughs> well, very good. Any last questions for Bruce since he is he is the guy that knows everything there is to know about implantation that anybody knows? I would like to put a plug in for something that I think is really important. And that's the fact that 50% of unexplained recurrent pregnancy losses, uh, patients have no recommended therapy. There is no recommended therapy for, for half of the population of women with recurrent pregnancy loss. Interesting. And we are doing a, a shot of HCG a week after ovulation, and we're getting an amazing pregnancy loss. And we've, we've published that, and we're going to put in a randomized controlled trial uh, grant to study it. But it is such an easy fix, and it's something I want you all to know about and, wow. and play with. A simple booster shot of HCG a week after ovulation uh, preserves fertility in these women with otherwise unexplained recurrent loss. So their corpus luteum is failing, and you're just bumping their cor- corpus luteum a little bit? or Yeah, we had 30. Uh, six out of 38 patients go on to have uh, ongoing or live birth. Wow. And these are women with re- recurrent pregnancy loss? And one of the wow. women who just married had a trisomy. So we know that that one was destined. So, Like what dose of HCG were you administering? Avadril or 5,000 units. That's it. It's very cheap. Very so easy. one Avadril or 5,000? And, and, it, and it, uh, there's no harm to it. There's no great cost. Wow. And uh, like I said, we've published a paper before this, and now a new set of 124 patients of which 58 uh, had unexplained uh, recurrent loss. Uh, and that's unpublished data right now? Yeah, I'm going to use it as preliminary data for our R01 that we're putting in. Mm-hmm. And that's on... A completely spontaneous cycle, no meds, no IVF, no nothing, just yeah, it was amazing. Okay, and one week later you go. Those 58 patients, all but one got pregnant when we followed them. And the women who did not uh, do the HCG uh, had about a 70% ongoing pregnancy rate, which is okay. Which is about what, yeah. But it's not 96%. So just like Carrie has somebody who's sticking in her head for this episode, I have somebody who's <laughs> in my head for this episode. And so I have this wonderful patient of mine who we have been successful one time with a chromosomally normal embryo. And she um, has historically usually made a good number of embryos and that type of thing. And we've gotten normal embryos and she gets pregnant almost every single time, but she miscarries pretty darn early. Could if, if I were to kind of translate that potentially into an IVF cycle, where would I want to give that HCG? <laughs> We do natural cycle um, FETs with Femera. Mm-hmm. I think Femera is an important component of, of the protocol I failed to mention. We do mm-hmm. Femera cycles and then use HCG booster shots. So in an 
FUT, you could do a fumaricycle time ovulation, put your embryo back and do a booster shot of HCG a week after uh, ovulation. Okay. All right. Mm. Well, that sounds exciting. Well, very yeah. good. Awesome. Hopefully that'll help a lot of people. I hope so. Thank you. So this has been a great episode. I've learned very a uh, whole lot and I hope our listeners have too. So to our audience, thanks for listening and tune in next week for more. Also, be sure to subscribe and leave a review in Apple Podcasts. We'd really love to hear from you. We're also on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Be sure to follow and subscribe and stay updated on all things related to infertility. You can also visit fertilitydocsandcensor.com to submit specific questions about your infertility. All questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously for our Ask the Doc segment, so don't hold back. We love episode ideas, so let us know what you're thinking and want to hear. And as always, this podcast is intended for entertainment and is not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. All right, we'll talk to you soon. See you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.